0: I want to greet all of you in Jesus' name this morning. Daniel already kind of tipped my hand that the message this morning is going to be from Ephesians 5 and follows hard on the heels of the last message, if you remember that. I had that message pretty firmly directed at the sisters and specifically married sisters, but not only them, sisters that would one day be married. Fathers of young women that would one day be wives. Potential future husbands. I think it was for all of us. In Ephesians 5, the message last week covered three verses. And those verses were related to submission and the unconditional call for wives to be submissive to their own husbands as the church is to be submissive to Christ. The message for this week uses for a text Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. And if someone's sharp and they're listening closely, I imagine at the end of the message, maybe more than a few people will notice that there's really only one verse going to get covered in this message, and that verse probably not entirely, completely, but it's an important verse. And before I read the text, the verse is this, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. We're going to hear a lot through this message of wifely submission and husbandly sacrificial love, submission and love as the foundation of marriage. And if you're like me, you'd probably say, well, there's a lot more to marriage than that. Certainly, submission and sacrificial love are important, but what about? And we could make a list, and the list could go on a long ways. There's a lot to marriage. So how do we relate to this, where the Apostle Paul in Ephesians seems to distill marriage down to wives submit and husbands love sacrificially? Well, to explain that maybe a little bit, I have a bit of a parable I want to tell you. It's not an inspired parable. You'll figure that out right away. It's a parable that uses a little history, which I'm interested in. And it also uses cars, which I've just bought and sold enough cars that I've got a little bit of that in my blood. And I'm interested in cars. So I want to tell you a story that takes us back to 1969. And the Ford Motor Company was reeling under the competitive pressure of Japanese imports of compact cars. And basically, the American car manufacturers were getting their clocks cleaned by the Japanese. And they were facing the possibility of bankruptcy because of their loss of market share. So the Ford Motor Company was headed by a CEO by the name of Lee Iacocca in 1969. And he set down a mandate. He uh, gathered many of the employees of the Ford Motor Company, and he stood up in front of them, maybe in a little bit of a context like this. And he started thumping on the lectern about what Ford was going to do to confront this tsunami of Japanese competition in the small car market. And he said, we're going to commit ourselves, as the Ford Motor Company, to develop a car under 2,000 pounds. That would be a very small car in that day. We're going to commit ourselves as the Ford Motor Company to build that car, to sell it for under $2,000. And we as a motor company are going to conceive and design and build and distribute and sell this car within two years. Okay, this has never been done before. It hasn't been done since. There's never been a car conceived, designed, distributed, and sold in two years. Not surprisingly, Ford had to cut some corners to get this done. And if you would know anything about the Ford Pinto and its sad history, you would know that it had something to do with their placement of the fuel tank. I see some of you maybe that share my affliction of gray hair smiling and remember the 70s. And remember the news stories? Terrible scenes of flaming cars and burned bodies and lawsuits, and it almost bankrupted the Ford Motor Company. They had made a tragic mistake. They found this out late in production. They had already manufactured vast numbers, tens of thousands of these Pintos, but they hadn't yet distributed them. They were sitting on a parking lot. They hadn't sold them. And they found out in some pre-sale testing, that these cars were subject to ruptured fuel tanks after a low-speed impact. That is, at even five miles per hour, running into the back bumper would drive bolt heads from the rear bumper into the fuel tank and puncture it. And in one of Ford's internal memos, they said that the entire contents of a full fuel tank were dumped on the ground in less than 60 seconds after a five-mile-per-hour collision. Well, Ford had to do something, and they did some calculating. And they calculated that they could retrofit all these cars with improved fuel tanks and shields and guards that would guard the fuel tank from the rear axle and the bumper in the event of a collision. And that was going to cost $113 million. That's a lot of money even today, and back then it was a lot more. Well... Ford went and did a little more figuring. They did some calculating. They knew that there would be fatalities. They knew that these cars were going to explode and burn. But how many, and what would it cost the company? So they sent their bean counters off, and the bean counters come back with their conclusion. There would be X number of deaths, and it might cost us as much as $50 million in liability payments. But Ford did a little calculating and said... Well, $50 million is a lot less than $113 million, shipped the cars. And they shipped the cars. And the cars got into rear-end collisions, and there were explosions, and people burned to death. As uh, wicked as this all was of Ford to do, it was a business decision, but it was also a poor calculation. It turned out almost 20 times as many people were burned alive as they expected And it turned out that when the courts and the public found out that Ford knew ahead of time and callously calculated the value of human lives and counted predicted human lives and shipped cars that needed a small retrofit to save people, they were tacked not only with compensatory damages to reimburse people for the so-called loss of the life of their loved one. They were also hit with 10 and 20 times punitive damages for knowingly shipping these dangerous cars. If you talk to Ford Motor Company, to this day they'd say less than 20 people burned to death in their Pintos because of this um, defect. If you talk to the attorneys that fought against Ford, they said it's over 200. Probably the truth is somewhere in between. But the reality is that those cars had a substantial, very real potential for a catastrophic, devastating failure. Now, I go back uh, in my driving days into the 70s, and I remember watching these scenes on television of these burning cars. And uh, it's kind of sobering. Well, I met a girl one day when I was uh, 18 years old. And what kind of car do you suppose she drove? Ford Pinto, of all things. One time, we were headed somewhere. She offered me to drive. And I never said this to her, but I was a little scared. (laughs) I don't like the concept of burning to death. And so when I drove that car, I did a lot of things right. I don't know if I used my seatbelt. I think I did. I used my turn signal. I drove safely. I braked. I came to a full stop at stop signs. But above all, absolutely, without doubt, I watched my rearview mirror. If you'd have been behind me and tried to crash into the back of our car, you couldn't have done it. I was very careful about that one particular thing. Even though driving safely required a lot of things, that was a foundational issue. Be very careful. Do not get rear-ended. You will burn and die. That was what was in my head. All right, that was a long parable that I probably didn't have time for, but I wanted to establish that the word of God is in, a, in effect saying that in marriage, there's a defect like the fuel tank in the pinto. And that is Adam and Eve enjoyed perfection, perfect husband, perfect wife, perfect harmony. But since the fall and the curse, there's the potential for catastrophic Devastating failure because of defects in fallen man and fallen women. We need to trust the word of God. We need to submit to the word of God and accept when it tells us that women need to submit to their own husbands. Wives need to submit to their own husbands. And husbands, we need to love our wives sacrificially in a costly way, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And we need to not not say, well, those are two things out of a long list of things. The word of God has singled them out and say, these are important. There is the potential for devastating catastrophic failure if you don't give heed to these warnings. So I'd like to use that as an argument for paying close attention. Sometimes we think, how important really is submission? How important really is sacrificial love? Shouldn't trust our own human wisdom. We look to the word of God for answers. If you've turned to Ephesians five, I'd like to read as a text. Last week's three verses and also the verses that follow related to husbands. Why don't we stand for the reading of the word of God? Ephesians 5 verse 22 wives submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church and he is the savior of the body. Therefore as the church is subject unto Christ so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands love your wives. in 2nd Peter chapter 3 the Apostle Peter makes an excuse for the Apostle Paul it's kind of a shocking thing he says this he says Paul speaks of things which are hard to be understood Paul speaks of things which are hard to be understood well the Apostle Paul wrote at least 13 and possibly 14, over half of the books of the New Testament. The word mystery appears in the New Testament 22 times. 17 times it's by the Apostle Paul. But twice he uses the word mystery and says that the the doctrine that he's teaching on is not only a mystery, it's a great mystery. So here's a man who is affirmed by the Apostle Peter as saying things that are sometimes hard to understand. And we come to two places in Holy Scripture where the Apostle Paul says, not only 15 times Paul says this is a mystery, but twice he says this is a great mystery. And it appears in this text, and I'll use that to make excuse for what I admitted to someone this week, that I find this to be the toughest scripture that I've come to in Ephesians 5. Really, really deep Doctrinal waters and really deep practical waters. Paul says. Of what we'll discuss today, this is a great mystery. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto you were not able to bear it. Well, what we'll discuss today is not milk, it's meat. I trust God will give us grace to handle the meat of what will be said today. There are many types and patterns and illustrations in scripture. There's very few where the type or the pattern works in two directions. Thank you. As it does here. Paul says... That the Christ church relationship instructs us about what marriage relations should look like. But we also understand that the marriage relationship didn't just come to be, and the Word of God teaches that the marriage relationship instructs us about how we relate to God. So here we have a type working in both directions. We don't, we take uh, the bread and the wine of communion. And understand them to be types or figures, reminders of the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus. But the type doesn't work the other way. The broken body and poured out blood of Jesus don't teach us anything about bread and wine. But here we have a two-way type going on. God as the husband of his people. Isaiah, thy maker is thy husband. Jeremiah thus saith the Lord I am married to you again in Jeremiah I was a husband unto them God speaking of his people husbands love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it want to use the words of scripture to describe what God has given husbands as a love language. I don't know if you've heard of the book, The Love Language. It came out in 1995. It's still on bestseller lists. It's a runaway bestseller. It's huge. The author has decided that there were five, not six, not four, five, and no more love languages. That is how we communicate across the gender divide, across husbands and wives. He used terms like gift giving, quality time, affirming words, acts of service, physical touch. These are love languages. These are how we communicate love. And we run into conflict. For example, if my love language is an act of service, and I come out to say, help my wife get ready for a meal, and her love language is words of affirmation, and I don't affirm her, she doesn't feel loved, And I feel like she's not appreciating my efforts to love her. That is how this love language concept works. I'm not necessarily supporting that. But the word of God offers only two love languages here. The love language of the wives is submitting to their own husbands. Sacrificing themselves in submission. Showing their love for their husbands in that way. The love language for husbands is defined as sacrificing suffering, laying down their lives, giving of themselves as Christ did. So there's two love languages going on here, but they're ultimately saying the same thing. I love you by this action. I affirm your value, your importance to me by this action. Okay, so we have the wives' role and we have the husbands' role. We understand it's not a vice versa thing. Those roles don't cross the aisle here. They're gender-specific. It's not a very popular word in today's society, but the Word of God knows nothing of vagueness in gender roles. I want to ask, as wives you've been assigned submission, and husbands you've been assigned sacrificial love, is it too human of us to ask who has the tougher job? My children, if I send one to fill the wood box, um, the other one to feed the chickens and bring home the eggs. Walking out the door, guaranteed, the discussion is, I got the worst job. No, I got the worst job. This is going to take me. I'm going to get my hands dirty. Oh, I'm going to be tired. I'm going I'm to get a splinter from the wood. Okay, who had the tougher job? It's a, a very human response. Wives submit husband's love. Let's look at that for just a minute. I want to make excuse a little bit for the husbands. <laughs> and for the husbands to appreciate the enormity of what we're called to. Wives, submit, Ephesians 5, 22 to 24, three verses. Husbands, love, Ephesians 5, 25 to either 32 or 33, either seven or eight verses, twice as many verses, twice as many words. Wives, your pattern, who you're to imitate, for you to carry out your role as wives, in obedience to the word of God. Your pattern is to relate to your husband the way the church has historically related to Christ as Lord. You are given the job of imitating a human institution. You are given the job of imitating in your submission the historically inconsistent, faltering, stumbling, inadequate submission of the church to its Lord. Husbands, you are called to love sacrificially as Christ loved the church. You are called to imitate Christ's perfectly faithful love. You are called to imitate Christ's infallible, unbroken, and unbreakable love for his church. You are called. To imitate God. Wife's call is simple. I don't mean to say it's easy. There's a difference between simple and easy. You are called to submit. Simple command. Husband's call is complex, it's founded on a simple principle die to self, give of yourself. Lay down your life as Christ laid down his life for his church. But it doesn't stop at that. It goes on to describe loving as Christ loved. To include terms like sanctify her, cleanse her, wash her, nourish her, cherish her. Present her spotless. Complex. Complex. Wives are to submit. Husbands are to die for their wives. This dying may not take the form of taking a bullet or throwing yourself on a grenade for your wife. Probably not. Maybe it will. God give us grace, if it does, to do that. More likely, it takes the form of Paul's dying for the churches in 1 Corinthians, where he says, I die daily. You know, throwing yourself on a grenade is kind of a, I don't mean to say it's easy. I'm sure it's not. I've not done it. But you throw yourself on the grenade and it's done. The daily death is, I believe, the giving of self that husbands are called to submit themselves to. I die daily. Also, you're not called to be willing to die. Christ was not just willing to die. Christ died for his bride. Not just willing to die, but to do it. A couple things I want to mention before we get into it. I do need to start this sermon eventually. See the clock moving. What's at stake? What's really the big deal? What if our love does not reach the level of Christ's sacrificial love for his church? Well, for one thing, it breaks the type. That is, a watching world that doesn't know Christ and doesn't understand Christ's sacrifice for his church is supposed to be instructed in that by looking at our marriages. And if they look at our marriages and see inadequate, careless inattention to sacrificial love, if they see a selfish world love, worldly love that they're very familiar with, the type is broken. At least the opportunity to testify to them about the majesty of Christ and his sacrifice, at least that is lost. At most, Christ's sacrifice is blasphemed and presented as here's what Christ's sacrifice for his people looked like. It looked selfish. It looked petty. It looked a lot like what you see in the unconverted world. So that's at stake if we fail in our call to sacrificial, costly love. One other thing is at state. Maybe more than one, but one anyway. In Romans 11, there's discussion about the Jews being cut off from the root and a foreign rootstock or a foreign stock being grafted in. And twice the term cut off is used. The Jews were cut off. And you Gentiles, be careful or you too will be cut off. And the word there, the Greek word is ek copto. Ek copto is cut off. Ek, we know from Exodus. It means out. There's an exit sign over the door. Ek is out. Kopto, we know a helicopter it has that little thing that goes around the air. It chops the air. Ek copto is chopped off. In 1 Peter 3, you can, uh, Mark Ephesians 5, but turn to 1 Peter 3. The word ekopto is used as one of the damages that happen when a husband doesn't love his wife as he's called to do. 1 Peter 3 and verse 7 reads this way. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Okay, the fallout of not loving your wife properly, according to the King James here, is that your prayers will be hindered. Actually, the word used there is ekopto. Your prayers will be not hindered. Your prayers will be cut off. You will be disconnected from your vital link with your God as you presumptuously neglect your command to give honor to your wife. It says that your prayers will be cut off as you fail to give scriptural honor to your wife. So that's what's at stake if we're negligent in loving our wives as we're called to. Turning back to Ephesians. Get this sermon started before 1130. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as, church, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So, husbands, our love for our wives is to be a picture, a portrait, a photograph, a type, an illustration, an example, an image of Christ's self-denying, sacrificial, life-laid-down investment in his church. Okay, if I pass out a test paper and say, what is your love for your wife supposed to be like? You could probably answer the test question correctly supposed to be a picture of Christ's sacrificial love for the church. How about the test of after you pass outside these doors? What does your love for your wife look like? Does it look like Christ's sacrificial love for the church? Would your wife say it looks like that? There's a story told of a wife working at the sink, cleaning up after supper, and the husband comes up. He says to her, honey, I just want to bless you. I want to let you know that I love you so much. I would die for you. My wife wasn't quite sure how to relate to that. She said, well, honey, thank you for that. I, You've said that to me before, and and I appreciate that. Thank you. And, but would you do me a favor? While you're waiting to die, would you help me with the dishes? How does your wife perceive your love for her? How do we get a hold of this idea? What would that love look like? How do we express this to our wives in a fashion that would not only satisfy them that I'm seeing Christ's love from you? That's important. That's necessary. But that isn't sufficient. We need to satisfy God. It's God that calls us to that, not our wives. How do we do it? What does it look like? What does sacrificial, self-denying, life-laying-down love for our wives look like? Help with the dishes. I'm sure it includes that. I'm also sure it doesn't stop at that. If we go to Isaiah 53, there's a long list of adverbs describing Christ's sacrificial love for his bride. I listed a few of them. Christ was wounded, bruised, chastised, striped for his bride. Christ was oppressed, cut off, marred, despised for his wife. Christ was rejected, sorrowed, grieved, stricken, smitten, afflicted. Has that been the result of our sacrificial love for our wives? That's the pattern. Christ gave the pattern. And here in scripture we're commanded. Go and do that likewise. If it's an encouragement to you sisters. As wives or future wives. About the danger of exposing yourself. By unreservedly and unconditionally submitting yourself to a husband. If there's an encouragement in that, it is this. Your husband will never abuse his headship power to crush his vulnerable submitting wife. Rather, he is to be crushed so that she can blossom and prosper. Now, I'm not saying headship and authority and power in husbands is not abused it is but in submitting to Christ a husband has no excuse to crush his submitting wife with his power or authority rather he is the one that is to be crushed so that you may blossom and thrive if we took the time in verse 25 to 27 speaking of things like sanctifying cleansing, purifying, nourishing, cherishing. This is what is supposed to be accomplished as the husband gives himself up for his wife. I want to just talk about the magnitude of what we're discussing here. I said that carrying out the wood is a lot harder job than gathering up the eggs. It doesn't stop at the things we talked about. The staggering magnitude of love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You are called to imitate the highest example, namely Christ's, of the highest form of love, namely agape, divine love. 1 John 3.16 uses this word for agape, this divine, costly, sacrificial love. It reads this way. Hereby perceive. I'm going to say understand. Hereby we understand the agape of God. Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. John 15. Greater agape hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The highest example of the highest love. We're to lay down our lives for the brethren. We're to lay down our lives for our friends. We're to lay down our lives first and foremost for our wives. As I'm warning myself, I'll warn you also. If you're carrying around any self-life, you are in more danger than a Ford Pinto full of gas, because you have something you're not permitted to have. That is self-life. Your self-gas tank was emptied when you laid down your life for the brethren. And then that empty tank had the vapors flushed out of it when you laid down your life for your friends. You're called to lay down your life. Lay down yourself, your very being. Make yourself of no reputation for your wives. If you are carrying around any self-life, you are in disobedience to the word of God. And so am I. Talked about this highest form of love and Christ as the highest example, the highest form of love. I want to just talk briefly about The two words for love that are listed in the New Testament. One is phileo and it's a human love. One is agapao and that is divine love. Phileo Strong describes this way. It's fondness. It's kindly affection for another. It's a human love. The word is used in Matthew 6 verse 5 where it says the hypocrites love to pray to be seen of man. Human love. We're very familiar with that. I think we've probably mostly experienced that. Phileo is human love. Agapao is divine love. It's a costly, sacrificial, God-imitating love. There is no higher love than agapa-o, and there is no greater example than Christ. I'll tell you this about the world. The world watches us. I know you know that. They watch our Families, they watch our children. They especially watch our marriages. They don't know so much what's going on in here today. But they watch us in everyday life. The world is very impressed and very satisfied if you will faithfully love your wife with phileo. That is human love. The world asks no more of anyone. Be faithful. Love your wife. Till death do you part. Very honorable. Very admirable. Very commendable. Very impressive. Love your wife faithfully. Till death do you part with phileo, a human love. Is it surprising that we can satisfy the world with our level of human love and maybe even satisfy ourselves and God's not satisfied? God asks more. God has taken a shoehorn and supernaturally forced an external spirit, his holy spirit of power, into human flesh. And now he expects more than faithful till death do you part human love. Now he expects divine love. Is it surprising that he asks more of us than the world would ask of us? Are we looking to please the world or please God? Husbands, agapeo, your wives. Even as Christ agapeoed the church and gave himself for it. This phileo and agapeo, there's a world of difference between a human love and the divine love. Divine love is costly. It's sacrificial. It requires a laid down life. I know some people get a little whatever, about some of this Greek stuff. But I sit through some of the German stuff, so I figure, y'all, I can I can expose you to a little bit of this Greek. Phileo and agape. I'm not going to go any further than that. But I want to turn to John 21 and talk about why it matters. Because the King James translation is seriously deficient. And that entire passage, you may as well rip it out of your Bible and throw it away. Because it's meaningless. Because it doesn't distinguish between human love and divine love. Turn to John 21. The closing words of the Gospel of John. Remembering that phileo is human love. And agapeo is divine love. Start in verse 15. I'm going to take the liberty of correcting what I will call an error in the King James James translation. And that is making no distinction between human love and divine love. Phileo in the Greek and Agapeo are both translated in this passage, love. And it makes it of no effect. And it's very important as we consider what it means to lay down our life, to die for our bride. Because Peter at the end of this passage is asked to lay down his life, to die, For Christ's bride. And he better know the difference between human love and divine love. Starting in verse 15. So when they had died, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, agapeo. Do you sacrificially love me more than these? He said unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest I phileo you. Thou knowest I love you with a human love. Thou knowest I am kindly affection towards you and fond of you. Yes, Lord, thou knowest that I follow thee. Jesus says to Peter, take care of my sheep. Verse 16, Jesus says again to Peter the second time. Agapeo thou me. Peter says to him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I phileo thee. I'm fond of you. I'm kindly affectioned towards you. I have a human love for you. Jesus says unto him, Take care of my sheep. Verse 17. He, Jesus, says again to Peter the third time, Simon, son of Jonas. Phileo thou me. You see, Jesus has changed gears here. He says, Jesus says to Peter, are you no more than fond of me? Kindly affectioned, a human love? Is that what you have for me? Simon, son of Jonas, phileo thou me. Peter was grieved because Jesus said to him the third time, phileo thou me. And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest, I phileo thee. Jesus saith unto him, take care of my sheep. Now, this was before Pentecost, and Peter did not have the Holy Spirit. Peter was incapable of divine love. You husbands, professing to have the Holy Spirit, are not only capable of divine love. You are called to nothing less. You are called to lay down your life as a fruit of your divine love. And if you don't love with divine love, you will never lay down your life. And neither would Peter. He goes on to say. Jesus to Peter. Verily, verily, I say unto thee. When thou wast young. I'm in verse 18. Thou girdest thyself and walkest where thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands. And another shall gird thee. And carry thee whither thou wouldest not. Speaking of Peter's call to be crucified. For Christ's sheep. To lay down his life to love with divine love. Verse 19. This spoke Jesus, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. And when Jesus had spoken this way, he said to Peter, follow me. Do you see how important the distinction is between human love and divine love? Human love never, ever would lay down its life for someone else. Divine love must. Jesus says to Peter, Love with a divine love. Take care of my sheep. Follow me unto death for my bride. You are called to love with sacrificial love unto the death for your bride. Jesus says to Peter, lay down your human love for me. Pick up divine love and then lay down your life for my sheep. Jesus says to husbands in Ephesians 5, Lay down mere human love for your wife. Pick up Christ-imitating divine love for her. And then lay down yourself. Lay down your self-life for your wife. You have no claim on self-life. You are a very dangerous vehicle rattling around the highways and byways with self-life in your fuel tank. It's a fatal flaw In men, sense the curse. Husbands, how do you feel when your wife fails to submit to you? I won't ask for a show of hands or any testimonies. Not looking to embarrass anybody, and it may be that... uh, Everybody else's family is superhuman and they don't even know what I'm talking about. But how does it make you feel, theoretically, if it hasn't happened in reality, when your wife fails to submit to you as the head? Is it humiliating? Is it disappointing? Is it hard to swallow? Is it shocking? (sighs) Well, did she? (laughs) She didn't submit. What's up with that? There's scripture. (laughs) Let me take you to Ephesians 5. Where do you get off, woman? How do you suppose your wife feels when you fail to submit to Christ and love her with a selfless love that reminds her of Jesus? You think she finds it humiliating, shocking, hard to swallow? Maybe as long as you're taking her to Ephesians 5, she can take you to Ephesians 5. I'm sure I need to be taken there. When did you last love your wife sacrificially, painfully, costly, in a way that you could say with a straight face? That was an example of Jesus' love, where Jesus laid down his life for his bride. I got that one. How far back would you have to go? This morning? Last night? That kind of love, the outward expressions of it, are not to be something that you can remember in the distant past. They are to dominate and define your relationship with your wife. When I ask a question like that, it should be silly, because I related to my wife today, of course. I loved her sacrificially. Matthew eight thirty five. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's not a big sacrifice if you're a Ford Pinto to dump out the gas. That gas is going to kill you. What have you really lost when you dispense with self-life? You are to lay down your lives for the brethren. You are to lay down your lives for your friends. You are above all, first and foremost, called to lay down your life. Die daily for your wife. Whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, The same shall save it. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Losing your life to save it and to redeem the other is the essence of the atonement, the gospel. It's the essence of the kingdom of God. And it's the essence of the marriage relationship. Somehow, only when you die, do you live. I can't explain that. But if you're not dying... You will not live. Die to self. We made a lot of the gender roles. I said they don't cross the aisle submission and loving sacrificially. But I have to back up, backpedal a little bit, and say they do cross the aisle because they're really one and the same thing. Wives are loving, losing their self life as they submit. Husbands are loving losing their self-lives as they sacrifice. Both of you are affirming the value of the other and showing your submission to Christ as you do that. We actually have the same role. It just sounds a little different. Submit and love sacrificially. In Genesis chapter 2, we read the account of Eve and her formation from Adam. And I imagine I could ask five or six-year-olds, What did Adam give to get his bride? I won't take the time to do that, but I think most of us could answer. It cost him a rib and some flesh. That was actually a pretty good bargain. You get a bride for a rib and some flesh. Take that deal. Because since the fall, the price went up. The price Christ paid for his bride was all of him. He laid down his life. It cost him all. Husbands, the price that you are called to pay for your bride isn't negotiable. You can't juice somebody down. You can't offer less. The price is firm. The price is set. The price is the price Christ paid, pouring out his precious blood for the church. The price is lay down your life in love for your bride.